Hi, this is Wayne Randazzo of the WCBS Mets Radio Network, and you're listening to Baseball and BBQ. Podcast, and if you like barbecue and you like baseball, then you have to listen to Baseball and BBQ with Jeff and Lynn. They always have the best guests from the world of baseball and the world of barbecue, all in one little package. So check it out, Baseball and BBQ with Lynn and Jeff. Okay, guys, take it away. Do you believe Lynn and Jeff and the Baseball and Barbecue Podcast are getting a cup of coffee in the big leagues as part of the Believe Network? This is Doug Scheiding of Rogue Cookers and Barbecue World Champion and guest host. And I can't wait to listen to the 40 million followers cheering for the upcoming show content. I believe. Do you? From the studios of Baseball and BBQ on Long Island, New York. This is Baseball and Barbecue episode number 131. I'm Jeff Cohen, along with Leonard Hollywood Aberman. And we welcome Hi, you Jeff. to our episode <laughs> this week. Hey, Leonard, how are you? I am good. Excited, Jeff. We spent the whole week looking forward to part two of Bob Kendrick and part two of Erica Blair. I said it last week. We could have said, hey, guys, Sorry. We don't have time. We've got to end it. But that would have been crazy because when you guys hear part two, I think you're going to say, wow, part two is even better than part one. Excited about both of them. And our partners at Bet Online continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all of the latest sports developments, including updated odds on the NBA playoffs, fights, and even next season's futures. And don't forget that the MLB, that's Major League Baseball, is back as well. Who are you picking to win the World Series? Bet Online is your continued source for all your sports wagering needs, including live betting and your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It's super easy to get started, so head to the website today or use your mobile device to join and use our promo code BLEAVE. That's B-L-E-A-V to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. Thank you, Len. You're very welcome. We're recording this. It's going to be the end of April. We're going to be one month done in the baseball season. Well, really, three weeks because we started late. And right. it's exciting for us Mets fans, I can tell you that. Yeah, it's a nice start to the season. I mean, it's more than nice. As a Met fan, they've won, what is it, seven straight series, six straight series? What six, is it? As of recording this, six straight series. Six straight series. Yeah, their pitching's been great. I mean, they 
you know, this is two weeks. It's two weeks basically into the season and or three, whatever it is. But, yeah, like you said, three. Yes, it is exciting, but it's exciting for there's a lot of teams that are doing quite well, Jeff. Yeah, but you know what? This is rare that Mets are doing well. So let's let's bask in this for a little while. Yeah, we got to bask. It might it might not last all season, but let us take a month. You know. <laughs> yes, we're, we're we're basking. Yes, but yes. If you want and- to bask in some great storytelling, listen to Bob Kendrick and part two of our our, our conversation with him. Uh, this question, I'm I've been formulating this question in my head. Sometimes going from my head to my mouth is an issue but here we go the museum and black diamonds one of the things that it does for me i never saw babe ruth play right Mm -hmm. okay i know of him i know his stats i've seen video but i never saw him play and yet i don't feel deprived because i never saw babe ruth play i'm not old enough to have seen satchel page play and yet i feel deprived because I never saw him play, and yet I could not have seen him play. But because, and 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 I know, and and here's where the translation. I know Major League Baseball is saying how the stats and they're taking into account and all that. But I still feel deprived of these incredible careers, and I think that the museum and your podcast is helping to fill in the gap that I feel. Does that make any sense? It makes a lot of sense because what we've already seen through this podcast, and honestly, guys, I had no idea what I was getting myself into when I let SiriusXM talk me into doing this, (laughs) but it's one of the best things that could have happened for our museum. Number one, it provided a national platform for the museum. But the other thing, Leonard, that you mentioned is that there's a new generation of baseball fans who are falling in love with the Negro Leagues through this podcast. And you do feel a, a, a level of being deprived, but you're right. We wouldn't have been, we never would have seen these players play had they played in the major league or what was then the white major leagues. But you feel like you were deprived because I think readily accepted by most baseball fans was, well, if it didn't happen in the major leagues, then it didn't happen. And all of a sudden, we're here telling you, oh, no, it happened. And it happened in grandeur. You know, these athletes that we talk about, they could have played in any league. They'd have been stars in any league. And, and But as you both know, no sport holds to its history. And no sport is as, as romanticized as baseball is. And so now when you start to hear these stories of these courageous athletes who overcame tremendous social adversity to play the game that they love, you fall in love with these almost mythical-like heroes. But as I remind people, when we talk about the story of the Negro Leagues, what's not to love about the story of the Negro Leagues? It really embodies the American spirit, in my mind and heart, unlike any story in the annals of American history. And so when our guests come here and ultimately walk out of here, you walk out of here, man, cheering the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail. Because now you've met some new baseball heroes and people are falling in love with them. And a new generation 
have fallen in love and hopefully will continue to fall in love through this crazy podcast that we do called Black Diamonds. And, and we're excited again to be able to partner with SiriusXM on this. I'm thrilled and honored that the podcast was named the National Sports Podcast of the Year by Adweek here recently. And, you know, you don't do this for accolades. For us, it's about educating. It's about educating. Us out. Bob, you beat us out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's always about educating them. And that's yes. what we We know the big names in, in, in the Negro Leagues. The Satchel Pages, Cool Papa Josh Bell, Josh Gibson. Even yeah. Oscar Charleston, now we're learning a lot more than we used to. But there are a lot of guys who we have not heard of. That I'm probably, when I get to your museum, and I haven't been there yet, it's on the bucket list, we're going to get there, that I'm going to learn about. You know, I get a newsletter from Sabre every week. And this last week they had a, an article on, I, I want to Marlon Carter, who was a, a Negro player for uh, uh, down in the South. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was uh, he, he's talking about when he... Oh when he played when he batted against satchel page and how some of his great memories playing in, in such great parks as yankee state kaminsky park it, it was just you know those kinds of stories that we don't hear about could you enlighten us on some other stories that you know people would not normally hear about yeah no i mean you know you talk about some of those legends and we've been able to bring forth some of those guys that maybe are lesser known to some but certainly just as important you know one of my favorite episodes we're talking about the great wilbur bullet joe rogan after all the excitement, and rightfully so, about Shohei Otani, who was just marvelous last season, you know, as a two-way star in our league. And everybody was saying, well, we hadn't seen this since Ruth. And it gave me the opportunity to say, oh, yeah, we have. Yeah, we have. It was commonplace in the Negro Leagues. And, and Bullet Rogan may have been the first of those great two-way stars. Bullet Rogan, Wilbur Bullet Rogan, when he wasn't pitching, he hit cleanup and played the outfield for the Kansas Monarchs. Now, let me tell you, you don't just hit cleanup in any Kansas City Monarch lineup because the Monarchs were always great. They were consistently good throughout the course of their entire run, an almost 40-year run in the Negro League. So you don't just hit cleanup in the Kansas City Monarch lineup without being special. And Bullet Rogan was special. Yeah, as Satchel Page would say in, in Satchel Page vernacular, Bullet Rogan was the onlyest player that he ever saw that pitched and hit cleanup. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that Double Duty Radcliffe also a two-way player? Double Duty Radcliffe, the legendary Ted Double Duty Radcliffe earned his nickname Double Duty when the great sports writer Damon Runyon saw Duty catch a Satchel Page shutout in the first game of a doubleheader against the New York Black Yankees, pulled off his catcher's gear, took the mound, and threw a shutout in the second game of the doubleheader and said he was worth the price of two admissions. He was nicknamed Double Duty until the was still nicknamed Double Duty, uh, (laughs) but he passed away in 2003, 2005 at age 103. And Duty was one of the great characters, but also one of the great two-way players. But so was Leon Day. And, and we'll introduce the great Leon Day in this year's segments of Black Diamonds. Leon Day as the great Monty Irvin, my dear friend Monty Irvin would say, if you saw Bob Gibson pitch, he had nothing on Leon Day. 
and Buck O'Neill swore to the day he died that Leon Day was a better center fielder than he was pitcher, and yet he draws comparisons to the great Bob Gibson. So you know he had to be a special player, and we introduce more of those kinds of guys. Hilton Smith, and Hilton Smith will be a feature point of, uh, well, really a featured character in this whole look at integration, because Hilton Smith had recommended Jackie Robinson to Kansas City Monarch owner J.L. Wilkinson. And Hilton Smith <laughs> did something that we won't see likely done ever again in the game of baseball. Hilton Smith won 20 games or more, guys, 12 consecutive years. He goes six and one in games against major league all-stars. Buck O'Neill says the greatest curveball he ever saw. Monty Irvin said you could know his curveball was coming. And the break on it was so sharp, you still couldn't hit it. Yet when he wasn't pitching, he played the outfield and had a lifetime batting average over 300. So, you know, we get chance to introduce these kinds of players who are not household names. Although the players that I just mentioned, with the exception of Double Duty Radcliffe, they're all in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Double Duty should be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So the two-way star was pretty commonplace in the Negro Leagues, it really because you had to have versatility. You know, the Negro League roster sizes weren't as large as Major League Baseball's rosters. So they weren't carrying a 25-man roster. So you couldn't afford to have a four or five-man dedicated pitching staff. So the pitchers in the Negro Leagues were all very, very good athletes. But you, when you think about it, when you're growing up as kids, who's usually the best athlete? The guy who pitches. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And then when they grow up into the sport, they stop them from hitting and doing those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But in the Negro Leagues, that was so commonplace. And, and we got to expound on that last year because of the great success that Shohei Atani had had. Bob, you've mentioned him a number of times from everything that, that we've talked about him. But thankfully, it's far overdue. But Buck O'Neill. Yes. is going into the Hall of Fame. And regrettably, it comes after his passing, but he belongs in there. And I'm so excited for you. And I know it's what it means to you, but could you just tell us a little bit about, you know, how you felt when, when he got in? Well, honestly, I haven't stopped smiling since about 5.30 Central Standard <laughs> Time on Sunday, December the 5th, when uh, the National Baseball Hall of Fame president, Josh Raywitch, started to read the bio of John Jordan Buck O'Neill as one of those players who had gotten voted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. As you could well imagine, it was a tremendous moment, not just for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum family, but I think the baseball family who had wanted this so desperately for so long. And honestly, fellas, I had thought it had gone and had been bypassed when Buck O'Neill passed away and he missed getting in in 2006 by one single vote. And so we, I had essentially written this off, that it wasn't going to happen. And you know what? I had resigned in the fact that it wasn't going to happen and what the Hall of Fame had done in creating the Buck O'Neill Lifetime Achievement Award and erecting the life-size statue of Buck, well, that was going to be good enough. And uh, then the door cracks back open. And they come up with this process through the early era ballot. And I'm going through great trepidation to see, you know, the rumor had it that Buck was going to be on the list, but you didn't know how many players were going to be and if Buck was actually going to be on the list. And then his name is on the list. 
Now you're going through the, the, another level of trepidation waiting for this vote to take place. And having gone through that ordeal in 2006, I had a much better understanding of how these uh, special elections and secret ballots in particular work. Secret ballots are always scary, man, because people don't always show their hand. It's like playing poker, you know, and, and they may say one thing, but then when they get behind the curtain, they do something totally different. And, and so I had to really kind of prepare myself for what the outcome could be. And when the verdict this time came our way, I got a, I finally had an opportunity to exhale. And I became overcome with emotion because I'm thinking back to, at that time, 15 years ago, when I had to deliver the news to my friend that he didn't get in. And it was gut-wrenching to do so. Who handled it better than anybody? Both. And I cried that day. But that time, those were tears of anguish. This time, I cried again. Buck always seemed to have me cry. <laughs> and I cried again. But this time, they were tears of joy. And I couldn't fight them back. I could not fight them back because I was just so overwhelmed that my friend was finally going to take his place amongst the immortals of this game, where we all believe that he should have been. And you're right. We wish it would have happened while he was still with us. Because you know we wanted to high five and chest bump and hug our guy. And, and so we won't get to do that, but it doesn't diminish the accomplishment and it doesn't diminish the potential impact that it can have on Buck's museum. And so, yeah, I've been smiling ever since, you know, December 5th when the announcement was made. And I'm looking forward to being there in Cooperstown. July 24th, to hear Buck's name officially welcomed into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. You know, Bob, you said you were overwhelmed with emotions. And I remember I was driving that day when the announcement was made. And I put on it was Black Diamonds. Uh, and there was a portion of the audio where he was singing yes. to the crowd and having everybody hold hands. And that brought some emotions to me. Go, wow, you know what? Just just the person he is. I went, went home that day and I w watched the video of him doing that. That was just just an amazing, amazing it, speech. It, that it, he gave, gave. it gave you chills because he gave that speech in hindsight. And I go back and I look back at that speech and I look at him. And it was now clear to me that he was sick. And he never led on to us. And somehow or another, he willed himself to be there in Cooperstown, to speak on behalf of the 17 other Negro leaguers who had gotten in, all of them dead. They didn't have a voice. And who was their voice? Buck O'Neill. To me, guys, it was one of the most selfless acts in American sports history because the world was saying, this should be your induction speech. And there he was speaking on behalf of those who didn't have a voice. Yeah, but when I look at the pictures and I look in his eyes, it was very clear that he wasn't himself. He never complained to us, never, even though he knew his medical fate. And shortly after he gets home from Cooperstown is when he first goes into the hospital, checks himself into the hospital. He would get out one time and then go back in. 
And of course, we lost Buck in October of 2006, that same year, at age 94, a month shy of his 95th birthday. But what he did was absolutely, I don't know too many people. Now, I think all of us would like to believe that we could have done what Buck did. <laughs> I'll be honest, guys, I don't know if I could have done it. Right. You know, I really want to believe that I could. I just don't know if I could have. And I encourage everybody to look at that video because Buck O'Neill, he asked everybody to hold hands oh, while they're singing a song. <laughs> and it was just, it, it was beautiful. It really was. And, and to see those Hall of Famers holding hands. Because yeah. if Buck yeah. O'Neill tells you to hold hands, hook up. You got to hook up, man. <laughs> Bob, it's 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 very. I think it's very appropriate that Buck O'Neill and, of course, Gil Hodges are going in the same time because you never hear a single bad word about Buck O'Neill, and he did so much for the game, and everything with Gil Hodges the same, and I just think that day. There is going to be just it's what a what a day that's going to be to have yeah, these two and, great men and, go in. And, and, and I would throw Minnie Minoso into that same category. Yes, yes. Minnie Minoso was one of my favorite people, baseball people of all time. Mm-hmm. When Minnie when Minnie Minoso walked in the room, the room lit up. Buck O'Neill, Minnie Minoso, they just seemed to just exude joy. So you yes, could yeah. be down around them. Many didn't get in that same year that Buck didn't get in. Right. And I know why a lot of people, obviously a lot of people were focused on Buck and the tragedy of Buck, but Minnie Minoso was an outright tragedy as well. And, and it's sad that both of them had passed on when they do finally get in. But my heart is filled with also great joy for my late friend, Minnie Minoso, who was indeed the Afro-Latino Jackie Robinson. And he should have been in the Hall of Fame years ago. But I'm glad that he's there now and that his family will get to experience that moment. And there's great elation on my part for Minnie Minoso. I spent many days hanging out with Minnie Minoso. And and, and again, I have to pinch myself sometimes, guys, because here's a kid from Crawfordville, Georgia. And and I get to hang out with Buck O'Neill, Minnie Minoso. Some days I would sit in my office before he passed away, and the receptionist would call and said, well, Mr. Kendrick, Ernie Banks is on the phone for you. Oh, and wow. I'm, like, I'm saying to myself, Ernie Banks is on the phone for me? You know, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it, it's a blessing for me to do the work that I do and have had the incredible opportunities that this job has afforded me to meet some of the most amazing people ever. And they're just not just the superstars of this game. No, no, my my path has been filled with tremendous people from all walks of life that has really made this, my experience working at the Negro Leagues Museum so rich. Uh, and, I, and it's something that I don't take for granted. You know, also, uh, we would be missed by saying that also going into Hall of Fame that day is, along with David Ortiz, is going to be Tony Oliva, Jim Cott, and what, who many believe is the very first Black American to play baseball, Bud Fowler. Bud Fowler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and, and he's from Cooperstown. Yeah. So, you know, he's a guy who actually grew up in Cooperstown <laughs> that is finally going into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. 
Only in baseball do you get these kinds of stories. That's sure. the romanticism that I was talking about. That's baseball, man. That is baseball at its best. And, and so it's going to be a very special day. I'm also super excited for my friend Tony Oliva uh, because I felt like he should have been in the Hall of Fame a long time ago. We inducted him into our Hall of Game a number of years ago. I was a little bit disappointed that my other friend, the great Cuban player, didn't get in. And that's my friend, El Presidente, Louis. Louis should have been in, Louis Tian. And I hope that Louis Tian will one day get in the Hall of Fame as well. You know, Louis Tian's father played in the Negro Leagues and was a great pitcher in the Negro Leagues. And Junior was incredible. And, and so I still have high hopes that El Tiante will one day get into the National Baseball Hall of Fame as well. But I'm really excited about Tony, Kitty Cott, all these guys that are going. It's a great class. And obviously, I'm looking forward to being there, uh, as Buck would say, in the Valley uh, on Sunday, July 24th, when this all goes down. Mm-hmm. Bob, this has been terrific. I, I, we really appreciate your time. I have a, one last question. Uh, then I'll hand it over to Len. But there's a restoration going on in New Jersey for Hinchcliffe Stadium, one of the last Negro Leagues baseball stadiums. Can you tell us what's going on with the progress with that? Well, they're making tremendous progress. I'm so excited. You know, naturally, the Negro Leagues Museum has a vested interest in wanting to see these sites maintained where there was Negro Leagues baseball played. And you mentioned it. There are not many. So the work that they're doing there in Patterson to restore Hinchcliffe and create this incredible economic development project as the stadium being the centerpiece of it. I got to go there when the stadium was being designated as a historic landmark. And I stood on the black top, what would have been the infield of Hinchland. And guys, it gave me chills. It gave me chills because as a steward of the story, you realize that you're standing on hollow ground, that Larry Doby and Monty Irvin and all these other legendary Negro League stars had played where I was standing. I felt that same way when I went to Rickwood Field for the very first time. And I stood there in that stadium and I'm envisioning a 17-year-old Willie Mays patrolling center field for the Birmingham Black Barons in the same ballpark that I'm standing in, not alongside all the other legendary Negro League players that call Rickwood home. But I'm thrilled with what they're doing there in Patterson. Progress is coming along. They're doing the same thing in Detroit with Hamtramck Stadium, Cleveland League Park. And and so there aren't very many of those stadiums that once called the Negro Leagues home still alive. And so the work that those folks are doing to restore them and to breathe new life so that the ghost of those legendary Negro Leaguers can come back and play once again. And, And that really excites me. Here in Kansas City, they tore down what was, by the time it was torn down, was Municipal Stadium, home of the Kansas City Monarchs. It went through several different iterations uh, through the years, but the Monarchs really made most history at that site. So they put, they built a plaza right on the corner of 22nd and Brooklyn. And the plaza had gone into a state of disrepair. And the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is now taking kind of onus of restoring it, giving it a makeover. And we're planning a dedication ceremony. I wish 
the stadium was there. There are so many remnants of the stadium that are actually featured inside the museum. Someone had the they had the wherewithal to keep some of that stuff when they tore the stadium down, I believe in 1974, well before there was even a Negro League Baseball Museum in existence. And they brought some of those elements here. So at least there's part of the stadium that's part of our experience. But I feel that same way about the restoration of the plaza so that people who live in that community can understand the kind of significant history that was made on those grounds. Yeah, Jackie Robinson played his first home game with the Kansas City Monarchs on May 6, 1945. So it's only appropriate that on May 6, 2022, we are going to rededicate the plaza. And, and so we're excited about this. That's what makes this work so special because we want to empower other communities to celebrate their Negro Leagues history and to research and to dig and to dive in and share that information with us because there's still a lot of information out there. And so, but I, I, I tip my cap to the mayor there in Patterson and all of those who have been involved with this incredible work. This is gonna be a, a magnificent, now it'll be a multi-use stadium, but that's okay. Baseball will be played there again. You know, Bob, I could talk to you for hours. You just, I just think you are an amazing ambassador for the game. You're an amazing storyteller. I think everything that you set your mind to and you do, you do extremely well. I thank you very much. But you mentioned tip. I, I was going to let you go, but then you mentioned the tipping your cap. And of course, I have my notes here and I wrote down, you know, the tipping your cap campaign, which was just an incredible thing. You you took a a situation which was not ideal mm-hmm. and and you made it into something. Could could you just tell us about the tipping your cap campaign? Yeah, and, and it really did. You're right. It, it it happened out of necessity because 2020 was supposed to be such a big year for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. We're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the birth of the Negro Leagues, which we certainly believe was one of the most significant occurrences, not in baseball history, but in American history. And it was our job to help others understand why that was so. And we were so excited about a year-long celebration that was going to be filled with various events, including at that time, man, an in-stadium, tip your cap. So we were going to have players and fans from all of the major league teams on a designated day which was supposed to be June 27th of 2020, in stadium, they would have this ceremony where everybody tipped their cap to the Negro League. And as you guys know in our sport, there's nothing more honorable that a ball player can do than just a simple tip of the cap. It is the ultimate show of respect and appreciation. Well, right after we announced our 100th anniversary year-long celebration plans, <laughs> something happened called COVID and a pandemic hit and and the museum was shuttered for three months from March 14th until June 16th. Now, again, the the tip your cap in stadium was supposed to happen June 27th. We didn't reopen until June 16th. And when we reopened, it was very clear that baseball was not going to be played on June 27th because Major League Baseball and the Players Association at that time were still in negotiations. Very contentious negotiations on not only not when they were going to bring the game back, but if they were going to bring the game back. 
And so at some point in time, and I tell people all, I tell the story all the time. As a steward of the story, you know you are not supposed to wallow in self-pity. That would be doing a complete disservice to those who call the Negro Leagues home. After all, they never cried about the social adversity. They went out and did something about it. You won't let me play with you. I create my own. So you know you've got to somehow dig down and find that same kind of resolve. But I'd be lying to y'all if I told you that I wasn't doing some wallowing. Now, there was some wallowing going on because we saw all these plans fall by the wayside. Well, after I got done wallowing, you realize, okay, you can't go down not fighting. And so that's exactly what we did. And I reached out to my good friend, the great writer, one of the greatest writers of the 21st century, Joe Posnanski. He is my brother, as we like to say, my brother from another mother. We're not biological brothers, but we're as close as brothers. And every time I have a bad idea, I call Joe. I vet that idea with Joe. And I said, Joe, what do you think about an idea to do a virtual tip your cap? And I'm waiting for him to say, Bob, we don't have enough time to pull this off. And he didn't say that. He thought it was a great idea. And then he reached out to his business partner, an incredible um, kind of publicist, marketing guru out of the DC area named Dan McGinn. And Dan thought it was a great idea. And the three of us went to work. And in a little over a week's time before this game was supposed to take place, July, June 27th, we rolled out the campaign on June 29th. And when we rolled it out, we rolled it out with four U.S. presidents tipping their cap. President Obama, President Bush, uh, President Clinton, President Jimmy Carter, the late great General Colin Powell, transcending athletes like Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Billie Jean King, entertainers like Stephen Colbert, Conan O'Brien. The list just went on and on. Four generations of Robinson women, uh, the Jackie Robinson women, sharing, of course, Rachel. Uh, and granddaughters tipping their cap. And this thing, this crazy idea goes viral. And the next thing you see guys were kids playing games, playing the game, standing and tipping their cap, saying, I see you, I appreciate what you did. And all of a sudden this feeling of doom and gloom changed to renewed hope and optimism. And we've been able to endure the craziness of a pandemic. And honestly, we had one of the best years in recent museum history that year right after that, because not only did we see Tip Your Cap take place, we saw legislation passed for the Mint to, to authorize the Mint to create U.S. Mint commemorative coins in recognition of the 100th anniversary. And then we get to December, Major League Baseball makes the historic announcement that they were recognizing the Negro Leagues for exactly what we knew it to be, a major league. And all the momentum started to build. And we've been riding that horse. We had a great 2021. And now as we move into 2022 and there's an impending Buckle Neal Hall of Fame celebration, we're front and center on the commemoration of the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's breaking of the color barrier. We're winding down, I hope, 
on this crazy pandemic and we're starting to bring events back to the to, into the fold again and we think that we have an opportunity to do something special but it all started with a crazy idea called tip your cap to the negro leagues and for those who might be listening who maybe weren't aware of this the the website that we created is still live it is called tippingyourcap.com and you can go there and see some of the amazing people and i tell people when we literally y'all went into outer space and got a tip of the cap from astronaut Chris Cassidy, who was aboard the International Space Station, I knew then we had done something pretty doggone special. <laughs> I remember watching that video. I remember going on website and looking at that. That's <laughs> amazing. Yeah, and uh, I encourage everybody to do that. And a simple idea that just went viral and just it was just fantastic you don't set out to create a viral campaign right those things just happen we wanted to create engagement that would grow interest in the work that the museum was doing but you know what i go back and i think about the summer of 2020 not only were we dealing with a pandemic we had we were dealing with the murder of george floyd and there was a lot of angst in our country And here comes something that we could all wrap our arms around, a simple campaign with a simple message that resonated with people at a time when I think we needed that. And and I call it the winning spirit of the Negro Leagues. And, And that is what we saw. It really kind of came along, I think, at just the right time. Bob? Like Len said, we can go on and on and on, but I know your time is valuable. We thank you very much for joining thank us. Thank you so much, Bob. It was just an incredible talking to you, as it always is. Yeah. I encourage everybody to go to the website, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, nlbm.com. Check out the great stuff they're doing there. And when you get to Kansas City, look Bob up. Please, please, absolutely. Guys, thanks so much, man. It's great to see you both. Thanks for having me back. Jeff. There's really nothing more to say. The man is true ambassador of the game. You know, it's very interesting because he had an excellent point last year. Shoei Otani, right? Two-way player. And everyone said, oh, first time since Babe Ruth. No, not. And I think you uh, you brought up someone, right? Double uh, Was double. it double duty, Radcliffe? Double duty, yes. It made a lot of sense that they would be two-way sure. players. Sure. Because they they couldn't afford the same roster. They didn't they didn't have the money to to have the same rosters that, as as Bob calls it, the I guess the white major leagues or whatever had right. So it made sense. And these guys were so they were such talented athletes, and they loved the game that it it made sense that they would do both. And it's always the pitcher who is the mo- really the most talented player on the team, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, when in Little League and all that. So it made sense that they would be great hitters, too. So the whole thing, the, the interview was just terrific. So, and if you want really to comment on the interview, give us a call at 516 855 8214. You can email us at baseball and bbq at gmail.com. We have a Twitter. Tweet us at baseball and bbq. Leave a message on our Facebook page, baseball and bbq. Our Instagram is Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. 
And our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. And please rate and review us. We have one special thing coming up, but just before I get to that, I just want to say something. I would have loved to see Satchel Page pitch. Oh, yeah. That must have been incredible. I so, wanted to see him with his b-ball. Tell us again what that is, Jeff. That the b-ball is, he pitches the ball where he wanted to be. <laughs> and Jeff, I, I, I think there's something in the air, and that is a baseball rant. Yes, I, I, I'm a little upset a little, uh, Len. Let me tell you this. You know, I love baseball. Love watching baseball. But, you know, there are times now where watching baseball is hard because where are you going to watch it? I mean, I pay for my cable. I use Files from Verizon. And I get the Yes Network. And I get SNY so I can watch the Mets and the Yankees. But I, this past week I found out, oh, the Yankees were not on the Yes Network. They were on Amazon Prime. Wait a second. So I got to pay for my cable, and now I got to pay for a streaming service, too, to watch them? Or you want to watch uh, – I wanted to watch the first Friday Night Met game. Oh, guess what? That wasn't on my cable. No, no. I had to pay for a streaming service. This in this instant was free, but you know what I mean. You, they want mm-hmm. you to pay for Apple TV. It, it, you have – they're all over the place. Yeah, It's on MLB TV, which you have to pay for. Then you have the MLB Network. Then you have Apple TV Plus. Then you have Amazon Prime. You also have it on Fox. And you have it on ESPN. And you have it on TBS. And Fox Sports 1. And Fox it is getting nuts. Why can't you just put the game on where game is consistently on? Why do you have to search for the game? Why is baseball making it harder and harder to watch baseball? Money. Money. That right? Am I am I wrong? What what else, what other reason is it? No, I mean you have two streaming services now, and, and the MLB TV package, which you pay. I, if you have T-Mobile, it's free, but if you don't, you have to pay for it. Which I don't, by the way. I mean, I just I have enough with with watching the Mets <laughs> and, and occasionally the Yankees, but you know what I mean. But you know, it's making it harder to watch. It's too complicated, you know. So the other night, I turn on. Uh, now they were in Arizona. The Mets were in Arizona, mm-hmm. so the game went on later. Right. But I turn on, on on SNY, and they were playing, um, uh, you know, a uh, a replay of some game during the Mets' heyday or whatever, classic, right? Yes, yeah, classic. Thank you. And I wasn't sure. Okay, wait, is the game going to be on SNY or is it somewhere else? Am I? I I'm like, I I don't really know if if I leave it on SNY, will the game be on? I, I didn't know. I had to like, you know, look and see, do I get the network that it's going to be on? Like you said, it was on uh, Apple Friday TV. night. It was on Apple. Apple, yeah. And and that was not whatever. We're not even, we're not going to get to how it was, but come on. It, I know the days, okay, of, you know, having it on one network all the time and then having one game of the week or whatever is done i get that okay but you're right if you're paying for you know jeff it's not baseball related but what about you 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 pay for let's say you pay for hbo max all right paying extra for hbo max and and it doesn't have to be hbo max it could be any one of these services you pay extra for it and you go on 
because you want to watch a movie. Now, it used to be that movies, when they were out of the theater or whatever, would go on to these subscription services, right? So you go on HBO Max and you see, oh, look, there's, uh, you know, whatever movie, I'm going to watch it. And then you go to click on it and it says rent for $19.99. Well, wait a minute. I'm, I'm already paying more for, so I pay my cable and then I have to pay for this other channel. And now I have to pay on the channel to rent a movie. It's too much, right? Now who's renting? Yeah, you got me started. <laughs> you, you, yeah, you got me started. Now we get so. something more pleasant, Len. <laughs> and that would be Erica Blair. Yes. <laughs> but but Erica, you were cooking against some people that have been cooking for years. Okay. <laughs> and, and you know, Bobby Flay may say to you, oh, you know, one of the things, because I always, I cook within myself. I think Bobby Flay He's went amazing. to culinary school. I, I believe. Okay. We, we actually went to the same culinary school. I went to the wine program and he right. was in the culinary school and we found that out on the show. And I was like, Hey, fellow alumni ish. <laughs> but, but you didn't go, but you didn't go for cooking. So no. it's, it, it, it is actually incredible, remarkable journey and feat that you did that to beat all these people. It's not you just. You want to know the secret? Yeah. They were all cooking the same food. Palate fatigue. I was cooking something different with different spices, mm. different flavors, different seasoning. I was bringing in a lot of my Creole culture. I was bringing in my Moroccan culture, my Cuban. And so those seasonings and those spices were different. So you eat, you know, 10 plates of American barbecue. Right. And then all of a sudden somebody's throwing a moho pork on you and you're just like, whoa, my taste buds are awake again. So it really gave me that advantage because nobody was cooking the way I was cooking. So I really was in a lane on my own competing against myself was, and it really I, worked out. I was looking at the, uh, at some of my research and you cook something called, and I'm sorry if I pronounce this incorrectly, Lomo al Trapo. Is that, is that <laughs> what is that? So that is that translates to beef in a towel. It's beef really- in a towel. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds a lot better. Lomo al trapo. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like the locker room in baseball. Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, that that's actually a Colombian dish. And it started out in the countryside and then it became very, very popular, like in the city at nice restaurants. And it's basically you use a towel to insulate your food and you just live fire it. So you soak your towel and whatever you want. You put your seasonings in. You do a layer of salt around whatever meat you're putting in there. And then you just throw it like a little envelope right on the coals, right on the fire. It just it hits all the elements because you're getting the char, you're getting the seasoning, you're getting the moisture on the inside because it's protected, you know, but you're getting that beautiful crust because it's burning in the towel. People just don't do that a lot here, I guess. So it was something different. And <laughs> But are you ruining the towel? I mean, it's, oh, it's, the towel uh, is gone. Oh, the towel is gone. <laughs> See, that's the problem. You, I mean, think about it. You're ruining a towel. <laughs> the towel is done. It's worth that it. It will never come back. <laughs> and, and Erica, the 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 other thing that you that you had, it, it's not just you know cooking with all these people. And yes, okay, so you're cooking things that you are used to cooking, and you must be an incredible cook at home. But it's the time. It's the time. 
cook a burger in 20 minutes. Uh, do this in 20 minutes. I mean, you got to and you seem to handle the time fine. I, I, I'm just amazed. The whole thing was amazing. It really was. Uh, I, you know, I think it's I think it's at some point we were cooking with such high temperatures. It was just one of those things where like you didn't have time to dwell on what you didn't have. You just knew you needed to get it done. And you're just like, dear God, like let this happen. But one of the other things is, is on the show, the pantry, I don't think people realize it's first come first serve. If you couldn't get there first or in the first like wave of people, all the good stuff was gone. So you were left with whatever was there. And so people were freaking out. I mean, they, people were having meltdowns and stuff like that. But for me, I was like, dude, I grew up like this. Like I, my, my parents invented chops. I would, I'd open up the fridge and they'd be like, there's a can of spam, some lucky charms and mustard go. <laughs> <laughs> so it never bothered me. I was like, I'll make something out of anything. <laughs> I got, I got to say, Erica, I am so impressed. You put anything you put your mind to your, your success. And that's, that's fantastic. I mean, and you, you're so, and I'm looking at you, you must be so young to accomplish so much in your life. That, that I'm just very impressed. I do want to change gears a little here. Uh, if you don't mind, I, I noticed okay. that you were part of the inaugural class of preserve the pit from yeah. Kingsford. And could you tell us what that is and what's that about? Yeah, that's really cool. So Kingsford put together a program where they are trying to promote and preserve the African-American imprint on barbecue. And so they call the program Preserve the Pit. And every year they put out a select number of grants and then there's fellowships where you actually get mentoring, you get business advice, and then um, you get some type of financial compensation so or assistance so that you can start your restaurant or keep your restaurant going. And so my mom found it. Uh, I guess it came like on CNN on the... Um, on the computer. And she was like, you need to apply for this. This will be great. So I was like, okay, I'm doing it right now. And so I applied and you, it's a very lengthy detailed process and you really have to put yourself out there and tell, you know, what you stand for in barbecue, what you believe in, how you think you're going to help make, you know, this legacy possible, uh, what you're doing for the African-American community and barbecue. And it was really detailed. It was very thought provoking. And I really appreciated that because I had it in my head, but I hadn't actually like written it out. And then they wanted, you know, a business plan and a game plan. So it really helped me lay a foundation for where I saw myself going in the future past Kingsford. So I was really excited to do that. And they, I think they just did it for this year, but I would recommend that, you know, everybody who can apply for it. I got, I think $7,500 for one of the grants and I was able to do my barbecue patio and help pay for Memphis in May last year. So it was, it was a really big deal and it's a great program. So I hope more things like that pop up for everybody in barbecue um, because barbecue is expensive and <laughs> I'd like to see more people be able to just take a chance out there and get into barbecue, get into competitions. I think it would be a really great thing. And we, we should probably say it's, 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 yes, it's a competition, but it's more of a friendly competition. Cause as you mentioned, people are just so nice in the community and just wanting to help you. It's just, I, and when Len and I went to a couple of competitions, you know, we, we saw that and it was just amazing. They just want to help I, you. I truly believe, like I always tell everybody, I believe that barbecue is a welcome mat. It's supposed to bring people to the table, bring people together. And I feel like competition barbecue 
we really do try to keep that on the forefront. And we really do try to have a sense of community and bring people together. And I really like that. And that's something that I go out of my way to try to do now because I don't want that to ever go away and I don't want it to change. So I definitely just, I haven't been to a competition yet where I was like, oh, these people are really mean, you know, (laughs) they're just, they're good people. They're really good people. Yes. Take us behind the scenes of the show. So we know there's obviously there's a relationship with Michael Simon and Bobby Flay. <laughs> They've been friends for years. Oh, okay. yeah. How, how are they when the cameras aren't rolling? Are they the same way as on the camera? Pretty much. Um, Michael is definitely from Cleveland. So, I mean, he has <laughs> one liners like he can just get you good. Like, I mean, he will he will zing you so good. Bobby's very quiet. He's a very reserved person. Um, and he's just, he's really compassionate when I, when, before I went on the show, you know, I just saw like the television and I was like, Oh God, like this guy, please don't put me on his team. Like he's going to eat me alive and steal my soul. But no, it couldn't have been different. He's actually very compassionate and he cared and he was there to like help anybody who needed help. And all he expects back from you is that you give it your all and that you come correct. If you're, you know, like fangirling or something like that, you know, he's not going to, he's not going to lean into that. He, he really values people who are genuine. And that's, I mean, that was our relationship. I talked to him. I asked him, you know, about his whole past and, you know, what happened. And he was just very open and he's very honest and he's just, he's a stand up guy. And Eddie Jackson is hilarious. He is funny. Like I, I never, I had never come across him before. But like from Jump Street, I felt like I was at a family dinner and he was like one of my older cousins. And he just like, he is the ultimate competitor. I mean, he's NFL player. So (laughs) when he gets his like sights set on something, it can be intimidating because he goes into that zone. And, you know, he was, he advocated so hard for his team and for his people. And I really loved that. And they just, they were all very positive people. I didn't have any bad experiences on the show with anybody's personality or anything like that. Like everybody was actually really, really cool. And everybody was like, you know, we're here to do something. Let's do it. And, you know, it's going to be stressful because that's what it's supposed to be, but let's try to make the best of it. And let's come out of this with good stories to tell like war buddies. Mm -hmm. So I liked that. (laughs) You seem to have a relationship a little bit with the Carson Kressley at my, Right. Love Carson. Yeah. He seemed to like to come over to you and kind (laughs) of joke with you a little bit more than anyone else. It seemed. I really, I really liked Carson. I've been watching him since before forever. So the fact that all of a sudden he came out, I nearly fainted. I was like this. I was like, I'm fine. I can go home now. Like I'm sharing (laughs) the same air as Carson Gressley. Like I'm good. But yeah, he, he definitely like tried to make sure that everybody stayed upbeat and that, you know, they were motivated and he really, he really cares a lot. And even though, you know, he's not a barbecue person, he went out of his way to learn and research and just like get himself up to speed so that he could actually contribute. And it was so appreciated. And he was always best dressed. I mean, (laughs) he just looked amazing. I was hoping we'd have like a mini challenge where he would get to like style us, you know, in Western <laughs> wear or something. I, I feel like they missed out on that. They shouldn't have done that. But yeah, he's just an amazing person and he's such a sweet soul. So you I hope this, again. 
Yeah, I'm sure they will. I, you filmed this during the pandemic, right? We did. We did. Yeah, we so, did it in um, February and March of 2021. So how did they handle that as far as did you have to go into a like a, a bubble for a while and, and make sure that everybody was, you know, was free and clear from the COVID and, and all oh, that? Oh, yes. We had to get down there a week early in quarantine and we got tested every single day. And like, it was like the first thing you wake up in the morning, you go downstairs and you get your nose swabbed. Like (laughs) that was your wake up like every single day. And they really, they had sanitation practices and they had like, you know, we weren't really supposed to be like touching each other or, you know, in each other's space. But like, I was like, I'm from Ohio, we're huggers. Like it's going to (laughs) happen. But yeah, so they were very serious about that. They took it very, very seriously. You met someone on there on the show that became, I guess, part of your team uh, for Blue Smoke Blair, Taylor Schulman. Yeah, she was my little ride or die. She was my buddy. It was us against the world. I mean, we spent so much time together. Even when filming was done, we would go across the across the street from our hotel. There was like a parking garage and we would go up there and we would just sit on the top of the parking garage and just like decompress every single day and really just like talk and talk about what happened, what we're going to do better the next day. Like we really we had each other's back like the entire time. That's great. Do you film every day? How, how, what's the schedule like? Yeah. So you would have a few dark days here and there, but it would be filming. Then you would do a full day of interviews. Then you might have a dark day or it's going back to filming. So every single day there was something that you had to do that you had to be present for on set. There was never like a lot. There was never like a lot of time off or like a lull period. You were always being called to go do something. (laughs) Did you have to do any kind of like a press tour after this or to promote it? Anything like that? No, um, they they had like their press that would either uh, do an interview with you or like, you know, local people were like, I mean, I had people from Dayton. So the local people, once they found out that I was on the show, then that happened. But we never did any like really concerted press releases or press tours or anything like that. After I won, I got to be on the Food Network Obsessed podcast. And then I filmed the after show, which was the reward was the digital series. So I did that with them. But there wasn't too much that you had to do. You were pretty free afterwards. You know, Len, not only is she a a champion barbecue, an attorney, a sommelier, she's also an accomplished author who came in second for the BBQ Book of the Year. I, w- I must say that, Len, second to our friend Ray Sheehan, who, who uh, won first prize. We, we, we're friends with Ray, so. We are, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then the awards just came out. Hey, Riley. That's my dog. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> I was like, why is, why is the computer shaking? Um, <laughs> and then uh, this year, the awards just came out, and I got third place for my barbecue documentary that I filmed in Houston. So I'm really excited because I just found out today. Congratulations. Uh, congratulations. Yeah. And speaking of that, how did you get into the YouTube space of, of all these digital videos that you put out there? Yeah, so when I was on the show, I started thinking about it, and I was like, what can I do 
to kind of just like really promote barbecue. What am I going to do with my platform now that I won? Like, I really felt that I owed a lot to other people that helped me, that got me to where I am today. And I wanted to make sure that I stayed true to myself and I went back and did service to others. So the best thing that I could think about doing was highlighting other people's journeys and their stories. And so that's when I started the pit stop with Blue Smoke Blair. I took my RV and I was like, all right, I'm going from Ohio and I'm heading all the way down to Texas and then I'm coming all the way back up and I'll film whoever is willing to let me film them. And so that's what I did. And I just, I really wanted to promote other people, especially small businesses, because I come, my family, you know, we own a small business and I really wanted to get people's stories out there and help them any way I could with, you know, getting people to look at them and see what they're doing and actually be willing to come out and, you know, try their food and hear their story and know the people behind the pit. So I went with my camera and I drove all over the South and (laughs) I had a blast and I met a ton of people and everybody, once again, they were so open and they were just like, come in and eat and we'll talk to you. And I just had my phone. So I'm like in their face with my phone, (laughs) like talking to the camera, But (laughs) but they were so patient and they were happy to get their stories out there. And today is the premiere of season two. So it's on YouTube. And then uh, it was also, if you're in Houston, it's in Spectrum One. So it's just been really cool. Um, One of the setbacks, I was so excited and passionate about the pit stop. And I was like, this is gold. This is great. Like everybody should want to hear this. And so I sent it out to like a few producers who are not in the barbecue arena, but they're in the culinary arena. And everybody was just like, ah, another travel food show. Ah." You know, and I'm like, no, this is about the story. The food is adjacent. Like these are these people's lives. And so I was kind of getting bummed out because it was just like nobody wanted to really take it or do anything with it. They're like, oh, yeah, it's great. We get a thousand food travel shows a day pitched to us, whatever. So I just I kind of like I was like, you know what? I've never taken no for an answer. And I was like, this is the digital media age. I was like, I won the show and I got, you know, a digital show. So I was like, why wouldn't I just put all my resources into this and getting it out there and promoting it? I don't need to do the traditional route of being on TV. And so I got really, really creative (laughs) and, you know, I, I reached out to everybody. I took a thousand rejections, but all I needed was that one. And so when I got it, I was like, okay, I was like, this is how we're going to do this. And it just, it turned out to be something bigger than me. And it's really, it's really just, I mean, we did Houston the most and it's just really united that area and everybody was just so happy to be on it. And they were so happy to tell about their friends being on it and who they knew and where I should go next. And I realized I was like, I was driving back in my RV and I was going to stop for the night in Mississippi. And I realized I was like, this is, this is barbecue love. Like everything that just happened, this is barbecue love. And I'm going to make sure that I protect it and promote it and do the best that I can. And I was like, I I'm doing this for the barbecue community. And those people are receptive to it and they want to see it because this is what they love. And I was like, so you hit a home run, like you've done it. You did what you need to do. So just keep it up. And it's just, it, ever since then, it's just been like a rocket and it's been great. And I'm just, I'm really excited about it. 
Yeah, I was watching a couple of videos there, and uh, I don't think there was any interviews. There's just a lot of lot of just shots of, of the food and people the eating. Trailers. And, uh, the trailers. Yeah, the trailers, right? And I go, there's Sean. I know Sean. There's Ryan. I know Ryan. I mean, he's <laughs> <laughs> so, I was great. Just, you know, even us, we're in New York. We recognize these people. Like, oh, look at that. <laughs> and they're my buddies. Like, when I was just filming it with my phone, I was like, hey, I was like, is this something that you guys would be interested in, you know, sending out to your people? And they were like, without a doubt. Like, they're like, we'll come down. We'll get, we'll find a videographer or somebody to work with you. Like, we'll make sure that, you know, we get it out there to the barbecue community the best way that we can. And they came down for season two and we ate, I think we ate like a total of 17 places. When I got back on the, I got back on the scale, I had gained eight pounds. Like, (laughs) (laughs) they they are great guys. Yeah, they, they, Sean and Ryan are, are terrific. I mean, again, it's just, it, it's amazing. The, the, the people in the, in the barbecue community, they're just, everyone is just, you know, nice. And, and, and it's funny because most times when we reach out to someone, they're always like, yeah, when do you want me on the show or whatever? And, and Jeff and I still were like, Wow, they they want to come on baseball and barbecue. I mean, our little yeah. podcast, our home away from home, you know. And it just but it's supporting you know, dreams. Yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. It, it's 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 really nice. Another question about the show: when they're announcing what what you're gonna, you know, what you they want you to cook. When do you start to like just not hear what they're saying? You just think. Okay, I got to get this, this, and this. I mean, because I'm thinking, okay, she's not listening, right? She's got to be thinking, I got to get this, this, and that. I mean, the the in your head, it just must be the whole like, what can I make? And uh, that that's just take us through that a little bit. I mean, if you could describe what that's like. Yeah. Well, so in the beginning, you have all these recipes in your head that you're like, if today I'm gonna make this, today I'm gonna make that. But if you don't get to that pantry first and you don't get the protein you want, then that recipe is gone. Mm. Um, So you learn quickly to just, you do it as you're running. You know, you're like in your head, you think, what are the base ingredients that you use for every dish that you ever make? Grab those ingredients. So regardless of what meat is left over, you already have your base ingredients before those are taken. And you are comfortable with those ingredients. So you know how to use them and you can season anything. I mean, I can season a gym shoe and make it taste great. And um, I bet you can. So, so one of the things I did was I always made sure that I got my flavor seasoning profile first. That was the first thing that went through my head. As soon as they announced whatever the challenge was going to be, if it was going to be seafood, if it was going to be beef, if it was going to be something crazy, I knew right now I'm like, okay, if I, if it's this, I'm going to use these seasonings. This is my flavor profile now go. And then that really cut down a lot of my time. And I was like, I was fine because I was like, okay, I know it's going to taste like this, whatever is in there. So so let's just see what's left over or let's see what you can grab and go with it. And I know a lot of people, they would, they would go through and they would like practice recipes in their head over and over and over again. And I mean, maybe that works for them, but it, I think it adds, it kind of puts you in a box. So then if things don't go your way on the show, if something's missing or you were depending on something now, 
you're put back in square one because you were so fixated on making this one dish and now you have to start all over. Whereas if you just think of your flavor profile first, then everything else is a bonus and you won't like freak out or waste time, you know, trying to go back and reinvent the wheel for yourself. And I think that really helped me a lot. You know, somebody said to me, they like watching these shows, but the one thing that they don't like is there's these delicious dishes and there's no recipes. Yes. One request. And I don't know. And maybe you'll say, I can't give that to you. And maybe you can't. <laughs> Those ribs in the end the, the, that you made that you that you won with. I mean, part of right. <laughs> How do we get that recipe? <laughs> actually need to make a video and like show people how that was made. I, so you have to make all your own rubs and stuff. So I used my dad's recipe that he had taught me when I was younger for rubs. He has like an all purpose rub that we use for everything. So I made that up really quick. And then when I got to the sauce, like I knew that I needed to do something with a lot of acidity and I knew I needed to do something with Tang because I was assuming that I'd probably end up going first or second. So I needed to blow out their taste buds immediately because my dish was going to be forgotten. Um, so I was like, I was in my head, I saw the ribs and I was like, okay, we're going to do, you know, either blackberry or raspberry. We'll make like a chipotle sauce. And that's going to actually still keep them tender if they have to wait a while to eat them. And it's also going to be packed with so much flavor. I was like going through my head and I was like, okay, all I need is, you know, a can of the Chipotle and adobo and I need some fresh berries. It really didn't matter what berries it was. You can, it's, it's just the acid you're getting from the berries. And so then I took a little bit of grape juice that I had in there added in just like, you know, brown sugar, paprika, salt, cumin. I was just grabbing different seasonings, put it in there, heated it up, got it runny. Then I made, I melted a little bit of sugar and made, you know, basically sugar water. I mixed that in with the sauce. Then I put the heat in with the chipotle and adobo, blended it up, heated that whole thing up, mixed some of the rib juice in there that came off, <laughs> stirred that all up, threw some more salt in there. And that was a dish. And then I pickled some onions. I pickled the um, blackberries and then we just put them right on top. And that was it. <laughs> you, you get that, Jeff? You, you, yeah. You're going to make that for me now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I come over your house. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you the star of the star of that was the chipotle and adobo and then balancing that out with sweetness. So any type of liquid sweetener you have, that was really what that did. And then pickling the onions, pickling the berries that just added that extra layer of acid. And that's really what did it because you were hitting all parts of the tongue. And that was it. Erica, this has been a wonderful hour speaking to you. It was just, I'm, like I said earlier, so impressed with what, what you've done and, and what you've done in barbecue just in just a short period of time. Where could people get in touch with you or your website and uh, YouTube and anything in social media? Where can people get, get to you? Yeah, the easiest way to follow me and to talk to me is on my Instagram and it's Blue Smoke Blair. I'm always on there and I always respond to everybody. And from there, you can find whatever else my hands are in. So <laughs> <laughs> I know you you Blue Smoke Blair on YouTube. Blair is spelled B-L-A-I-R-E at the end. So Acts of life. From Facts of Life. There you go. <laughs> I know the website is bluesmokeblair.com. A lot of good stuff on there. So, Erica, 
This has been wonderful. Thank you very much for being on the show. Yeah, we really, thank really you very it. much. Yes. And thank you for not asking me about baseball. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm telling you, Erica, I know I, I just have a feeling you would you would just you'd be the you'd hit 400. You'd it's you know, maybe not athletics. Maybe that's not your thing. OK, maybe, maybe that's, that's not it. Maybe that's the one thing you're not good at. OK, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Love y'all. Thank you, Erica. Len, I love talking to Erica Blair. She's just great. Yeah, she's terrific. She gave a lot of insight. And hopefully our rants didn't turn listeners away and they stayed with us for Erica. <laughs> so we apologize to Erica. <laughs> if anyone said, oh, I'm not listening to this. Stay with it. Listen to Erica. She was great. You know what, Jeff? This show is brought to everyone by Bet Online. Jeff, we've got a couple of companies that we would like to thank. Why don't you start us off with our thank yous? Well, we want to thank BaseballBBQ.com. They are great partners of ours. They are, and they have incredible grilling tools and accessories. And, you know, it's funny, on the on the last episode, I said that they have baseball handles, but it's not baseballs because then you think of a baseball as a handle. It's baseball bat handles, actually, which would be a little longer <laughs> than a baseball. <laughs> and you could grip them better because... The way that the, apparently the baseball's made this season, you, you, people are complaining that they can't grip the ball. So can you imagine if you're trying to grip your, your baseball handle and it was your spatula slip? That would be bad. These are baseball bat handles, and it is like holding a real baseball bat, and you're grilling with it. It's terrific. And Jeff, who else would we like to say thank you to? The Pandemic Baseball Book Club. Ah, that's a good one, too. Yeah, they ha- they're authors. The pandemic is supposedly over. So I wonder what they're going to do, but we'll still continue to have authors on. Love speaking to the authors. And Jeff, we also have our good friend Ray Sheehan of Barbecue Buddha. He has, of course, his Big Green Egg book, Cooking on the Big Green Egg, and his Barbecue Buddha company. So we encourage you to look for him and his book and his sauces and rubs. Very good. Again, Bob Kendrick, Erica Blair, part two. Jeff, I wish there was a part three for each of them. There no isn't. Part three. No. No part three. Well, right. We will come back next week with another great episode. I can promise you that. All right. I will take you up on that promise. And let's take us out of here. And Jeff, I'm going to tell you. I know what you're going to ask me. How are we going to end the show? I'm going to tell you how we're going to end the show. We're going to end the show with the poet, Shel Krakowski, the musician, Dave Dresser, and this song, Baseball Always Brings You Home. Jeff, give you the last comment. (laughs) We'll see you next time. (laughs) 